Welcome to the Fracture Line, the official weekly news feed from the Chest Wall Injury Society, where we will listen to all the bottom line CWIS updates, shout outs, fun facts, and weekly banner. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Crisco, and I'm joined always by Dr. Tom White, Dr. Adam Kay, and Sarah Ann Woodbeck. Welcome back to Fracture Line, everybody. It's TW. Zach, did we just become best friends, Bauman, Sarah Ann Whitbeck, and Carl Hansen? I do want to explain the TW, the drink. I mean, this is a this is a new entity to me, and the TW, and I think that Seawish should know about it. It's uh, it's 300 agabapentin, kind of dissolved in the bottom of a of a nice glass of tequila. Bon <laughs> appetit. <laughs> It has to be Reposado or Añejo. You can't use the Blanco stuff. <laughs> Añejo. Añe- Añejo is best. Okay, I actually ha- do have a legitimate topic for us tonight. Okay, what's that? Here's my question. What do you do now that in your rib fracture practice that when you started, you never anticipated that you would be doing? Right. And not just like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I can do such small incisions. Right. Not not that. I mean, not the obvious, not just like I've gotten so much better. You know, that's that's fairly intuitive. Like, of course, the more you do something, the better you get. But like what thing, what clinical pearl, maybe there's multiple, I should say pearls. uh, What things do you do now that you've been doing it a while? You know, Dr. Crisco, you've done at least four to five cases. (laughs) <laughs> Other people have done more, I, you know, as it's been going along, right? What things have you picked up along the way that when you started, you would not, if you were to, if your future self were to, t- were to tell your former self, yeah, and you know what? You're always going to do this in the future. What things would kind of blow your mind or you'd be like, really? Are you sure? Zach, you want to go first? I like to brag to my thoracic <laughs> surgeons that I actually do more vats than they do. <laughs> <laughs> Mic drop, boom. Anytime you can you can have street cred, always a good thing. Dr. Crisco, what's yours? All right. I think the biggest thing that maybe it's not like as I look back, you know, when I first learned this or started it, but I think the biggest impact on my patients and everything is a is a team-based approach. Meaning not just me deciding to take a patient to the OR, but once you once you've created a program that is functioning, it's PT and OT texting you all day saying, "Hey, we got we just saw this patient. We think you need to, you know, we think they would benefit from a block, or we think they would benefit from a fix." And you have your residents doing that, and now we have nurses doing that, and now we have an entire surgical floor worried about how to best deal with chest wall injury and that's probably what's changed my practice the most is having having built enough of a team that you can just rely on so many people to help you with your decisions as opposed to just yourself i think that's fantastic i hear two things there one way to go on being a collaborative center and two you have lots of people looking over your shoulder good and bad there's pluses and minuses on that front so Way, way to set it up as a good structure. I think that's fantastic. I appreciate that. And, and I think there are a lot of our members that probably wish they had that kind of structure, right? That, that they had more, you know, more of that team-based approach or that they had other people that were kind of 
you know, looking for looking for patients where they could improve the care in that similar way rather than them like negotiating with other people, you know, f on behalf of the patient instead feeling like it's, you know, open and honest or open and approachable conversation with other people on their team. That's very good. Yeah, I think it's just what's changed the most for me. You know, the operations changed a bunch, and you've, you've added a bunch to the operation Certainly. And, and great techniques, but that's definitely what's changed them. Yeah, definitely something that you probably didn't anticipate from where you started to where you are now. That's very cool. Totally. I appreciate that. Dr. White? Well, one of the problems with letting people go in front of you is they, they take the good ideas, and you're, you don't want to repeat them. <laughs> I usually say that if I'm out of a good idea, I'm like, oh, everyone said all the good ones. So I, I can see where you're coming from with that. Yeah. I'm going to go a little bit more on the technical side because I think my technique has changed significantly. I did the, my first surgery repair in 2009. That was 15 years ago now. I know it's hard. To, it's it's mind-boggling. But I think uh, when we were doing this early on, we didn't have a lot of um, experience, clearly. We didn't have a lot of um, guidance on who to fix, how much to fix, when to fix. I think we know a lot more about that stuff now, and it's been really exciting to be part of that evolution, but it, it has been an evolution. I'm more aggressive than I was before. I take patients to the operating room. Um, I'd rather, I know this sounds like heresy to some, but I'd rather fail fixing a rib or two that never needed to be fixed than to miss a rib or two that was going to cause that patient discomfort or long-term disability or non-union. So I'm, I'm more aggressive. doesn't mean I fix, you know, every fracture, but those marginal cases, I at least strongly consider it. In the old days, I, I passed on those because I wasn't sure. I, I wasn't as confident as I am now that I can do the operation safely with very low risk. I see it, some nodding oh, heads yeah. there. Maybe you guys agree. Maybe you don't. I don't know. But but the other thing I do is in the operating room, I fix more fractures than I did 10 years ago. And it's not because I get paid more, you know, or I would rather be in the operating room than somewhere else. It's not that. It's, it's a belief and a an evolution in thinking that leaving significantly broken ribs in that in that construct is does two things. It gives the patients more pain to focus on other than your repair, and it leaves residual instability that, that can be stressful on your repair. And so I, I tend to I tend to fix more fractures than I did. And I'm more meticulous about it. Somebody's gonna write on my on my tombstone don't worry about it so much. It's a rib, not a femur. And I used to say that to residents. Don't, don't worry so much. There's a gap there. There's a little bit of this. That's not really straight. It's not that big of a deal. There's 24 ribs. Don't worry about this one so much. And I don't feel that way anymore. I've evolved to feeling like every rib is, is a femur. And you should do everything. You know, Don't spend an hour on a rib. But if it takes 20 minutes to do a, good, a, a rib well, and it used to take you 10 when you did it sloppy. Spend the 20 minutes. It's worth it to have the rib, uh, the rib plate interface be be uh, exact. It's it's worth it to avoid tension. It's worth it to good good reduction. It's worth it to not strip the periosteum. So I become technically more meticulous. That's what I do differently now than I did 10 years ago. Was that the question 10 years ago or five years ago? The question was just when you started. So, so again, for Crisco, it was like last fall for you. It was, you know, 2009. <laughs> yeah, sure. So I've been at this a while. So I don't know that those are my thoughts. I do have a real answer. I think for me, it's, it's very similar to Tom. Like I'm definitely a lot more aggressive and again, like not like an inappropriate way, but just, I too agree that, you know, these some of these questionable cases, I'd much rather fix them and uh, stabilize their chest 
and not have issues down the road, then miss somebody and then have to take them back for a non-union or a, you know, a um, intercostal nerve that's now trapped in the in the repair, which you know obviously is few and far between, but it does happen. I also think that uh, just and you know this is just like a personal thing, but like you know with time your confidence comes, and I've I've really learned so much about the chest wall that I didn't know, you know, when I graduated from medical school or when I graduated from residency. And I think that, you know, by learning the different muscle groups in the chest wall, like it's made me a much more confident surgeon that I'm, I, I remember when I first started, I would try to talk myself out of like, maybe if the rib fractures were too anterior or maybe if the rib fractures were too posterior, I'd try to like finagle away out of some plating some of those patients um, because I was a little bit nervous about like that approach. Like, how was I going to get that approach? How was I going to make this a muscle sparing technique? And, and I think that as I've been able to do this more and more, I've been able to learn how to, uh, you know, find those planes, split those muscles, not damage, um, disrupt their, you know, movement and, and how they function and whatnot. And I think that's really helped me, uh, become a better surgeon and, uh, uh, and be able to just tackle a lot more of these uh, rib fracture patients than I was when I, when I started, you know, doing this a lot seven years ago. So unfortunately, I think you've identified something that's a reality and that's, there is a learning and confidence curve that can maybe be flattened a little bit with good mentoring and, and good teaching, but you've, you've got to do a few dozen of these or a hundred of these before you, before you go in the OR with the kind of confidence and the kind of armamentarium of skill that allows you to do what exactly what Zach is talking about. That doesn't mean that someone with less experience shouldn't be operating on these patients. They should, but they also need to realize that there, there's a lot to learn and you don't learn in the first 20 cases or the first 50 cases you learn it and you never stop learning it. Don't, don't get complacent and there's always room to get better. I think, I mean, that sounds like, an old man thing but I, well I, and i, I think that's that where true. things like slack when people post questions about how something will you know how they should approach something or you know phoning mentors asking for an expert panel i think you know we have this or there can be this expectation or this idea that well it's not a super complex case so i shouldn't xyz you know i, I shouldn't be reaching out because it's going to seem rudimentary or you know i when people you know, do post cases that are, you know, a less complex, I will say, or, or maybe more on the beginner phase, you see that they'll always start the, the discussion with, I know this one's easy guys, or, you know, there's some, there's some disclaimer, you know, to that. And, and I, I wish we didn't do that to each other, right? That, that it's okay. Like everybody's at a different space, everyone's at a different space. And if you don't ask, or you don't have that conversation or post that, those, those images or something like, you know, maybe you aren't going to learn as much, or maybe you're not going to get as much out of that case as you could if you asked for some feedback and, and maybe the case isn't going to go as well. And maybe there's some tip or trick, you know, I know Dr. White, you mentioned there was, there was something I, I'm trying to remember, I think it was a muscle sparing thing, or there was something that you recently called even Dr. Pullman, because you wanted to make sure there was some, some piece that you knew he had done before oh, that yeah. he talked yeah. about a case and and so you're asking, you know, Dr. Pullman, even after all these years about, you know, a particular technical skill, even at this phase of your career. And so I think if, if even after 15 years, you're saying there's something to learn and there are questions to be asked, you know, surely people that are in their first couple of years, you know, should feel no shame or, or no, you know, 
um, anxiety about posting questions to Slack or reaching out to other members to ask similar questions. Yeah, it's really well said. But isn't that the reason surgery is the greatest job in the world is because it never gets old? Even routine cases can always be done a little bit better, a little bit differently, or you know, whatever. And and uh, there's nothing. There's really nothing routine about rib fracture surgery. You're you're operating on the patient's chest, and you got to do it right. And they're they've been injured. They're not they're not normal. And so it's 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 you got you got to take every case seriously. Some are easier than others, sure, but they're all important. Yeah, that that anecdote was was real. I had a case where I had a guy with several markedly displaced, very high, very posterior second and third rib fractures. And I wanted to, you know, I needed to get to those. And that's a really hard place to get to without cutting muscle. You can try to split the trap and the rhomboids and go down on them, but I struggled with that because the guy's muscles were thick and it was it was an old fracture pattern. It was really stuck. So I needed to divide the trap and I needed to divide the rhomboid. But you have to be careful where you can do those and get away with it and you can repair them. Patients do fine, but you got to know where to cut those. You know, how far away from the scapula do you do that? Where is the spinal accessory nerve, et cetera, et cetera? And that's not an approach we do every day. So no matter how many of these you do, you're, you're going to find situations where you need help. And I think that's what CWIS does better than any anything else out there is it provides ready access to reliable help. That is fantastic. Put that on a bumper sticker. <laughs> I totally agree with you, Tom, that surgery, that's what makes surgery the best best uh, profession in the world, as well as the chicks that you get from it, too. So. Sure, the chicks. Well, everybody goes, <laughs> money for nothing, chicks for free. I think we should write a song or something. Oh, I was just thinking that dire straits, man. I, you, Man, you read my mind. <laughs> Dire straits, money for nothing, chicks for free. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think I'm familiar with that, but I'll look it up. You're not listening to anything. No, for sure not. Carl, I will say this. You may not know who that band is, but you look like you should know who that band is. Yeah. That's <laughs> okay, so Dr. Hansen, now the question is to you, because you ha you don't have as much clinical practice in this field. What things have blown your mind in the time that you've done this, right? What are the things that you look at and go, we're going to do that today, you know, and, and, you know, that you're looking at the imaging and then suddenly you're looking at an open patient and going, really? Okay. Like what, which things are that? Before Carl answers this question, I mean, you realize he works with me. That is correct. But you know what? He does rotate with other people. So maybe there's a chance he's going to work out. I mean, it's going to work out for him. I took a fourth toe off today and I was looking at this toe and I'm like, you know what? I think I could use this as a graft in a non-union. And it was a nasty, oh my black, dead piece of toe. And I'm like, you know, somebody save that toe. I want that piece of bone for later. <laughs> you and amputations? Glory. Uh, yeah, the residents are killing me with these things. All right, Carl. It just gives you time to catch up on charting. He doesn't even need to scrub. Anyways, so learning points, things that I've learned. In all seriousness, I agree with Dr. Crisco. We have a very multidisciplinary sort of approach to the way that we do rib fractures. The residents are very keyed into it, right? We're a small rural community health-based hospital. And so it is imperative that we get to know what it's like to deal with rib fractures. We're, we're always looking to, to learn more, do more. We had a patient who came in, this patient was uh, in trouble and we took care of it, right? I wasn't there for the surgery, but 
from my recollection, the ribs were all beat up. They were broken in different places, and I, she would not have survived long term if we didn't do something. And then this last week had a, a big trauma that ended up getting both sides repaired, which I think is a first for us at BMC. Maybe not a first for you, Dr. Crisco, but I think that's the first time that we've intervened at the same time, both sides of the chest. Yeah, I tend to break them up. But yeah, you're right, Carl. We, I don't always do both sides at the same time because it's long on patients. But well, going back to Zach's point, you know, I think it is as a experience of my residents uh, or in, you know, my experience too, from learning from people like Tom and and, and Dobin and, you know, all the other great people, like it takes a lot of different incisions to learn the chest wall. And every time I make an incision, it's different than the last because I use an ultrasound targeted approach like a lot of other people. So it's not like you're learning one incision, you know, and so you got to do hundreds of these to master the chest wall, like Zach said, because our incision is different. Almost, you know, sometimes we use the same incisions like a posterior osculatory triangle or something if you're lucky, but Sometimes it's totally different. And so Carl is learning a new incision every time he enters the OR. You know, that's hard. And I think the other piece that's really important, at least from my perspective as a, as a resident and a new learner, is the workup, right? It's trying to find that patient that's appropriate for the OR that needs it, right? And there's a lot of laterality that's given to us to be able to talk to you in the morning and say, yeah, I think this patient needs to go to the OR. I know you haven't seen the imaging, but... Here's why I think they need to go. You know, it's that. It's the evaluation. It's initially, it's kind of a scary thing to go push on someone's chest that's broken. You don't want to hurt them, but you kind of have to know, is there actually instability there? You can't, if you're super gentle and you're not really putting, you're doing a real evaluation, people put stress on their bones every single day. If you don't stress those bones, they may not act for you the way that they need to. And, and that patient may not go to the OR when they need to. You're wise beyond your days, Carl. No. You're wise beyond your days. I don't know about that. I would love to see the morning report between Carl and Mark. I imagine it goes something like this. Dr. Crisco, I have this patient that I want to take to the F. Shut the f up. Let me finish my coffee. I got to go hit the slopes. <laughs> Fresh pow pow outside. No, no. I'm sorry, Dr. Crisco, but I think this patient has an unstable chest and needs to go to the operating room. Yeah. Well, what did you, what kind of exam did you do? You know, I mean, I, I can see it. I'd love it. It's, it's T-Dub, you are like almost <laughs> Spot on. He's like, that's weird. You walked your hands and filmed this morning and then sent it to you? That's so strange. <laughs> but Carl, honestly, what a better what a better way to learn it, right? I mean, if you went up and your attending agreed with everything you said or disagreed with everything you said and never gave you a chance to, to walk out on that plank a little bit, how do you how do you how do you learn? I mean, that's how you learn. You don't want to do that on your day one of your of your internship, but I'm sure I'm sure Mark gives you more and more plank to walk out on or rope to hang yourself with as you progress through your residency, which is exactly the way it should be done. I mean, I've, I've had the full, you know, 200 feet of rope <laughs> since day three, probably, you okay, know, well, no, no. <laughs> Mark just skips the first year. Okay. No, no, but, <laughs> but I think that that's like, that's a big thing for us to be able to walk through and, you know, look at people. I mean, that's the job, right? The job is to, to see the patient in front of you and then do the right thing, right? If that means operate, operate. And if it means don't operate, don't operate. But you have to be able to tell the difference between those two. Just remember, Carl, a chance to cut is a chance to cure. I'm going to get all sentimental here and talk about mentoring and teaching and what a special place in heaven for those who teach 
and and you know and and share their patience with trainees it's it's hard work and it's noble and some you know everybody does it a little bit differently but those that do it enjoy doing it um do it not because they get paid more for to do it or whatever they just it, it's it's a noble calling and but this is to you zach and mark i know you guys do it every single day thank here's to you well thank you tom i know you do it every single day too not so much anymore i've kind of been pushed back into the into the, into the back room Carl, can I give you a piece of advice? Sure. When you're doing your rib cases, I would challenge you at the end of each case to give yourself a score for your incision. Was it a 10? Was it perfectly placed? Was it exactly the right length? Whatever. Or was it a 6? You had to struggle in this corner and it should have been higher. It should have been lower. Give yourself a score and be critical and then do that for the for your next 2,000 rib cases. And I promise you, your incisions will get better and better and better over time and your scores will get better. I don't know if you guys do something similar to that, but I do that. I don't do, I don't, I no longer physically write it down, but I used to. And now I, I, I walk away from the table and I think, you know, that, that incision was a nine. That was pretty darn good, but I could have been a little bit more oblique or a little bit more posterior or whatever. It, it, it's almost never perfect. Be critical about your incision and why it wasn't perfect. And then the next time you have one that's similar, that's you'll be closer to, per, to perfect. I'd recommend that for anybody who's listening to the pod, but particularly for training. I'll integrate that. Sarah, that was a good question you asked. Look at that. Why? Thank you. That was a great question. Good question. Let's hear some updates. You got updates, Sarah? I sure do. This week, we have case review on Wednesday at 7 a.m. Mountain Time. Join us. It's going to be fantastic. Someone that's actually on the pod is presenting this week. I'm just going to leave that teaser out there. So it's teed up. Signed up. You signed up for case review. What, what am I doing? I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> You're yes. talking to me. You're flying here, too. <laughs> okay. So this is. A, what are we talking about? Start over. This is now a public service announcement for everybody and you. You're doing case review. You're one of the three case review people. Yes, I'm ready. So case review Wednesday, 7 a.m. So that's going to be fantastic. And then on Saturday, I'm sure if you're not already planning to be there a week from Saturday, uh, March 2nd, if you're not already planning to be there, then you may not be able to change your plans. But um, send positive energy anyway. Um, oh, my God. That was good. So nice chest wall injury. <laughs> repair meeting is going to be amazing it's in miami i don't know why you're all laughing at me because i'm telling <laughs> well we're laughing at carl and how good that ice cream sandwich is good looking you, you got what? you got tom that's looking at carl carl just making He's love making to love to that sandwich, sandwich. <laughs> carl is making love to this ice cream sandwich over here dude He's good call really that happy about that sandwich, you guys don't give him a hard time He's yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for him. Just watching him, I'm just. Oh Carl, it is almost ten o'clock your time. I wouldn't even let my kids have an like ice cream sandwich at this hour. Ice cream sandwich because he keeps eating. He keeps he eating a lot like, of ice cream sandwich. Yeah, you you made that ice cream sandwich lasted longer than I anticipated. But you know what? We we all got to enjoy that for you. So anyway. Hey Carl, do a little toss with your hair now. That would just be. That would just seal the deal for him. Oh, yeah. Update's over. <laughs> that hair toss. That was good. <laughs> Bob, that was fantastic, dude. Fabio couldn't have done it better, whatever that guy's name is. Seriously, Carl, you've mastered one thing in residency, and that is it. Awesome. Okay, let's do a final stitch.
Who's got one? I've got one. It's all you. I actually mentioned this earlier today in executive committee, but our fracture line visitors obviously aren't privy to that that discussion. So I wanted to do this one again. I would challenge everyone to download chapter five of this year of this season's um, revisionist history podcast with Malcolm Gladwell. Season nine, but episode five is the one you want to focus on. It's about guns. And in episode five at minute 17, our esteemed president elect is, gives a, a, uh, has a conversation with Malcolm Gladwell about gun violence. And it's, I was, I was so proud. Caught me by surprise. I was just listening to the podcast and suddenly Babak Sarani was talking to me and I, I just, I, it's, it's, it's epic. It's everybody who's a CWIS member should should listen to it. So one more time, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, season nine, Revisionist History is the name of the podcast. It's but episode the whole five, thing, minute it's 17. It's a really good episode. Do it. I mean, it's a really good podcast yeah. Yeah, in listen general. Listen to the whole thing. It's amazing. But, but don't miss the, that one 17. in particular is very interesting. So congratulations, Dr. Serrani. Cool. While you were talking, I just, uh, I just downloaded it. I just pulled it up. Yes, it's very good. You won't be disappointed. Cool. Thanks, Tom. So I got one. Sarah will like this one. You know those like Tay-Tay bracelets, Taylor Swift bracelets that people have been making? You know, like, so one of my residents has a friend who makes them and she had her friend make them for me and her, but ours say I heart ribs instead of uh, I heart Tay-Tay. Oh my God. Wow. How do I get my hands on that? So now I have this bracelet that says I heart ribs. Which was really nice about my resident that got this for me. She's going to go into uh, uh, trauma and, and do rib fixation as well. So they have kits that you can make your own, you know? So I was looking at, I was like, how many of these kits yeah. would I need to buy if we wanted to have a bracelet making station at the summit, right? So then I was telling my mom, I was like, I'm going to have a Taylor Swift bracelet making station. And she just thought, she's like, have you told Dr. White yet? I was like, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> She's like, you I can don't tell her feel now. Like you told me. I thought it was a like great that. idea. Like, so I have them sitting oh. in my my Amazon cart, like waiting to buy them because I was like, I just think it'd be so fun, right? If we could all Push make in. bracelets. Yeah. yeah, they can say I heart ribs. They can say I heart I ribs. Heart, I heart sea whiz. Or I heart sea whiz. Or... Okay. okay, so my final stitch. I think I mentioned on an earlier pod that what my mom really wanted for Valentine's Day was to see Barry Manilow in Vegas. Yes, the Barry Manilow. So last weekend, I took her to Barry Manilow. I mean, we took my dad as well, but, you know, with the dementia, like, we could have been anywhere. So anyway, so we went to Barry Manilow. Barry is turning 81 in June, and he's every bit of 81 that you can imagine you guys, I haven't seen my mom this happy in the longest time. Like she sat there jamming back and forth as, you know, Barry sang every little song and that happiest couple hours of her, of her little month. Like it was adorable. I must admit, I, not my favorite, you know, couple of hours, but it was pretty delightful to watch, <laughs> watch them enjoy it. So Barry Manilow. He sang Mandy, and he did do Copacabana at the end. And I must say, I'm a sucker for the Copacabana. So that part, I will admit, I was up on my feet, like, cheering and clapping. Because you can't help it. I mean, Copacabana, really? Of course. Like, there's there's nothing like the Copacabana. So that was my, my wild Saturday was uh, me and Barry Manilow. Fantastic. What's your final stitch, Carl? 
I finally bought my plane ticket for the summit. So I guess that's what locks it in. I'll be there. We still need to register for the summit and get hotel rooms. But hey, one step down. You better hurry because the, re- the hotel rooms are going fast. Is Carl going to be just doing uh, podcasting the whole weekend? Eye candy. Yeah. Eye candy. That and eye candy. Yeah. Carl, can we podcast from one of those big booms? If I buy one of those big booms, <laughs> can you just walk around and like hit people on the head with it like constantly? Oh, sorry. Oh, you know. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Sir. Excuse me. I'm just trying to make my way into this presentation. <laughs> Are we doing a fractured line trip to the Seawis base of operations, Sarah Ann's basement? <laughs> it's such a cool place. I think that's a great yeah, idea. Squirrel, Stupid squirrel would just be staring at you, Carl. Idea. Yeah, it's dangerous. <laughs> I haven't seen the squirrel in a few weeks. I'm hoping it was run over or something, but... It'd be fun to do a broadcast from there. It really would. We should think about that.